Welcome to the Natural Health Podcast. We bring away in a sustainable health and business hustle space. The Natural Health Podcast is perfect for the high-performing business-minded individuals who want to work with their biochemistry to achieve success and optimal health. It's Friday, which means it's time for friends sharing facts about health, business, and overall success. In today's episode, we talk to nurse Cameron Rosen. Cam grew up in rural Montana mountains in the USA before migrating to Australia in 2008 in the early days. Cameron followed his passion for photography and worked as a freelancer, photographer, and videographer. During university, Cam completed his nursing degree with a strong focus on biochemistry, pharmacology, and ethnobotany. Cam now works as a cannabis nurse educator, guiding patients through their medical cannabis journey and providing clinicians with the tools required to safely and confidently prescribe cannabis medicine. He grew up in rural Montana, USA, working as a river guide with his father's white water rafting company before he moved to Australia. Before he was a cannabis nurse, he was a traveling freelancer photographer specializing in landscapes. He's also a musician and an average surfer, so he says. Welcome to the Natural Health Podcast, Cam. Thank you, Mahela. It's nice to be here. It's so great to have you here. So you were a photographer specializing in landscape. What was the most spectacular photo you took of a landscape? I would love to know. Oh, I mean, I think New Zealand. New Zealand is basically the most perfect environment for photography. Um, it's got the same kind of mountains and, and grandiosity as a place like Montana, but we don't have the grizzly bears in New Zealand, which is... Um, a nice bit of peace of mind when you're hiking up mountains before sunrise. So New Zealand is picture perfect, absolute serenity, and there's nothing there that can kill you except for your own decisions, which is a nice environment to be in. That is so well said, and I've been to New Zealand a number of times, and I couldn't agree more after, more with you because I've taken some absolutely amazing photos with just my average phone. So <laughs> I can That's imagine what you would do with all of your uh, gear and hiking up with 10 kilos worth of camera gear. <laughs> so much gear. But then phones are, phones are taken over anyway. Like There are plenty of phones that could probably definitely put out the quality that professional cameras can get. So it's putting photographers out of business. Yeah, I'm not a photographer anymore. <laughs> that's exactly right, and that's why. Thanks for, to cannabis, we've got other things to talk about today. But before we get into that, I wanted to find out what have been the key turning points in Cam's journey in your life to get you to where you are today. Well, first of all, I think that having access to the information that we have right now is being definitely the driver behind you know, my career choices. I think being able to commit to self-directed learning in a really tangible way, uh, being able to problem solve by yourself using the power of the internet. I think that those have all certainly contributed towards it. And then <clears throat> I, I started listening to podcasts maybe eight years ago, and that was where the journey started, I think, because you hear people speaking openly about things instead of just reading some text from a textbook, you're hearing professionals engage in a captivating conversation and then their passion is infectious like when somebody speaks with passion that you you go hang on i didn't know i was this interested in plants but because this guy is so passionate about it now i'm passionate about it and then from there i think i uh pairing a natural curiosity uh an inability to sit still um <clears throat> and then some 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 life events like uh the reason i decided to go into cannabis was a, a few reasons. First of all, I saw 
my my dad that was on uh, opioids because of he's had three hip replacements, a couple of knee surgeries, some back surgeries. So he's been through the shit and watching him reclaim his livelihood, his quality of life by swapping out opioids for cannabis. Um, that happened when I was about 15. And when that happened, I went, hang on, what's actually going on here? Because he's using it as a medicine, but it's not allowed and we can't use it and it's illegal to grow. Is it just weed? Is it marijuana? And then using that as a stepping stone going onto the internet and going, all right, well, what's actually in cannabis that's making it work? And this would have been 2013, maybe started researching, started looking into things, going down rabbit holes and realized very quickly that cannabis is not just a weed. It is a collection of some of the most bioactive compounds on earth that happen to be put into this one vessel. And from there, you realize why it wasn't allowed for so long. It's because it's a massive industry disruptor. And so during my nursing studies, one of the main things that I noticed, um, I worked in aged care homes um, across hospital wards, and it is polypharmacy. Polypharmacy being on five or more medications. And not only are those medications interacting with your own physiology, but they're interacting with each other to produce various adverse reactions. And you see these old people and they go, oh, you know, I got a nurse and I can't see and everything hurts. But, you know, it's just part of getting old. And you go, it's not. It's not all part of getting old. Like you shouldn't just be breaking out in hives. That's that's a result of these medications. And it's a very it's a very palliative focus. So when somebody gets prescribed a medication, they're on it for life. And I looked at cannabis as an option to reduce the effects of polypharmacy, because if you can provide somebody with cannabis and target their sleep or their pain or their anxiety or their depression, um, even their hypertension, things along that, those lines, then suddenly you're replacing two, three, four, five of those medications at once. Yeah. Wow. And you can see exactly why it would, and it is disrupting the whole, um, the whole, you know, the whole, the whole system, <laughs> like you it's said. A, a massive industry disruptor and not, not only medicine, um, but industries at large you know cotton fiber paper fuel um concrete these are all things that have the potential to be very much disrupted through hemp cultivation and cannabis yeah well we should probably end our podcast or else we're gonna get hacked and all this stuff aren't we no. <laughs> if we're disrupting <laughs> well, it so much <laughs> i know i'm always i'm always on a lookout you gotta watch your six yeah that's why the window is there it's like whoa <laughs> <laughs> No, absolutely love that. I love that you got your drive from so close from your dad. I mean, you know, as a 15-year-old, you see these things and, you know, you got rules and regulations and you're like, okay, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do that. And then all of a sudden, as a 15-year-old, you see your dad taking something that's supposed to be illegal, but it's helping him and it's helping him live a better life and it's helping you as a family have a better life. It's kind of like, wow, this isn't matching up. So you're the type of person that dug a bit deeper and tried to understand it. And now you, you're here today to educate people on it, which I absolutely love. But before we get into, you know, talking so much more about cannabis and everything else, I want to find out what does success um, and optimal health look like for Cam today? Success and optimal health. Well, I'm a very driven person. Um, no doubt about that. But I wouldn't say that I'm driven by, by money. Um, I am driven by success. You want to be successful in whatever you, what you put your mind to. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to make a career out of things that I'm truly passionate about. And so success for me means actually waking up every day and, and looking forward to the things that are on my task list and, and problem solving. And 
especially paving a way and starting to build a foundation for these emerging industries. That to me is success in my own, in my own eyes. And then in terms of optimal health, uh, I'm very much driven by lifestyle. Um, do you work to live or do you live to work? And how, how does that working lifestyle benefit your, your, your day-to-day lifestyle? So optimal health means to me, I work with my mind, not with my body so that I can use my body for play so that I don't have to, you know, beat myself up over years of, of working for the man. And then I can use my body for the things I want to use it for, whether it be hiking and surfing and traveling or riding bikes or riding motorcycles. Um, I, to me, optimal health means having the physical functionality that allows me to go and do whatever I want to do. You know, I'm all about trying new things. Um, as I, as I said, I am a very distracted person. Um, and I become hyper fixated on, on different activities at different times. Like I'll dive into a rabbit hole and for three months straight, you won't see me out of the water surfing or after that, it might be riding bikes or after that, it might be playing music. So um, optimal health means having the ability to do those things when I choose. Yeah, I love that. Not being and limited. It, yeah, absolutely. And like you said, that stuff, that actually helps with neuroplasticity, being fixated on a few things and then learning something else and not always doing the same thing. So you're actually unintentionally working on your brain and making it stronger. There we go. All right. I'll take that. <laughs> you're like, yes. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. So look, let's talk about today's topic. There's so much fuss everywhere you go, every media you read, someone is talking about medical cannabis. To start off, let's get into the history of cannabis. Can you explain to the audience a little bit about the history of cannabis? I mean, you touched base on it a little bit at the start of the episode, but let's go a little bit more deep on. All right. So we'll, Honestly, the history of cannabis could constitute its own podcast. It could constitute its own series of podcasts. Um, it has been one of our most ancient remedies. It has appeared across the globe. It's one of the only plants that appears on every single continent due to its versatility, its durability, and its different applications. So um, I think one of our first recorded uses of cannabis comes from um, what is now known as modern ta- day Taiwan, but this is about 8,000 BC. <clears throat> so they found hemp and pottery cord in an old cave there. And then from there, we had 6,000 BC cannabis seeds and the plants are started to be used as food in China. Shortly after that, they're being used as textiles and ropes being used widely across China and Turkestan. Um, in 2,700 BC, you get the first documented case of cannabis medicine also in China. And then from there, that use of hemp, this is about 2000 BC, starts to transport itself around the globe, usually in the form of textiles and food. And so hemp rope was on every single ship that, that traveled the world. It made sails, it made clothing, um, it made their their transportation containers. And then the, the seeds themselves are so nutrient dense that start to be used really widely as food, food across the world. Um, they appear in ancient Persian texts, the, um, what's it called? Zendavasta, which uh, dictated that cannabis, or at the time they call it bong, a bong is a mixture of cannabis leaves, stems, and seeds, and that was one of the five sacred plants, and they would be used uh, as medicine, as food, ritualistically. Sorry, there's somebody just broken into my house. <laughs> Um, 100 BC, we got hemp paper is being used in China. Um, and then you get start to year 130, ancient Greece is 
these physicians are starting to prescribe cannabis to patients for various ailments. Um, around the year 300, it's being used widely to manage menstrual pain, childbirth, labor. Um, cannabis has appeared in Viking tombs, in royal tombs, in shipwrecks at the bottom of the sea. It was absolutely everywhere. Uh, in fact, in 15, I want to say 1530s, King Henry VIII dictated that if you had land, then you actually were required by law to cultivate hemp for industrial purposes. And if you were found to have land and you weren't cultivating hemp, then you were fined severely. And it's the opposite so, now. <laughs> and this, is, this is the fallacy of this whole thing that we've experienced. Like we have been very much conditioned over the last 70 years to believe these, these propagandic notions. And sorry, someone knocking on my door again. That's not my problem right now. Um, uh, so... Going back to, so you've got the 1500s, King Henry declares that you need to be cultivating hemp. Um, let's fast forward to the 1700s, 1776. Hemp is being cultivated widely across Kentucky, and that use starts to spread into all the other states. And so, again, it's being used for textiles, for um, paper, for ropes, uh, for food. And then in fast forward to 1840s, roughly, it's starting to be used widely across the USA. So it's added to their <clears throat> Journal of Pharmacopoeia. And the American Journal of Pharmacology as a, a very solid medicine. Um, you could access it at, at general stores, at pharmacies, at supermarkets. You could get it absolutely everywhere. Um, and then fast forward a little bit to 1910. This is when the Mexican Revolution began. And because of this Mexican Revolution, we had lots of people immigrating from Mexico to the United States. And with them, they were bringing a more recreational use of cannabis rather than the strictly medicinal use in the United States. We also had a inherent racism going on at that time, still going on, but it was very deeply set. And what we need to keep in mind right now is that this was also the second merging into the third stage of the Industrial Revolution. And so uh, all these industries that were born out of wartime, whether it be fuel and textiles and manufacturing, they became peacetime industries and they were making a very pretty penny. Uh, but they realized this and they realized that the power of hemp was um, very widespread. Like, for example, in the 1930s, uh, Henry Ford that created Ford cars, he opened up a plant in Michigan and they started to build the frames of their vehicles out of hemp. And they also ex uh, experiment, experimented with a uh, bio extraction technique that allowed them to utilize hemp fuel so in this one facility they were able to both build the cars and make the fuel that makes the cars run and this is in the 1930s and this is also the time when mr henry onslinger entered the dea as is the as their their leader now henry onslinger very very powerful man lots of connections in the paper industries like the wood pulp paper industries cotton industries uh, petroleum industries and all of these major connections that facilitated his merge into the DEA. Now he's got to pay him back in some capacity. You know, you, when, when you use those powerful connections to get into those powerful positions, you are now beholden to, to what those guys want. And so it all worked out very nicely for Henry Onslinger because we have the Mexican revolution. We have all these people migrating over to the U S they're scary. They, they look different from us. They play different music. They do things that we don't do. And thus we have this uh, amalgamation of race, 
music, um, <clears throat> cannabis, and different lifestyles. And they were able to paint cannabis as a, as a scourge, as a really evil drug. And this happened very, very quickly because we had alcohol prohibition, and that was the 18th Amendment, and then they repealed that and instead swapped it with cannabis um, and, and hemp. And even though hemp is not cannabis, people don't use it for a psychoactive things. It was all just kind of bundled into one. And so through, you know, reefer madness and even using the, the term marijuana, marijuana is a pejorative term that was supposed to tie race into the plant. Like they never called it marijuana, but the, but the Mexicans did. And so marijuana being a kind of a foreign ethnic sounding word, it scared a lot of fragile white people. And then you, we had a mandatory minimum sentences from the 1940s on until we had Mr. President Carter. And Mr. Carter saw the fallacy in this. He saw that this plant did not spark aggression, did not spark psychomanias like, like the, how reefer madness portrayed it. And he tried to abolish these uh, mandatory minimum sentences and essentially decriminalize the plant for anybody caught with it that had under an ounce. And then that went okay for a little while. But then we had Mr. Ronald Reagan come into power. And he very quickly, almost instantaneously, reversed President Carter's decisions and then introduced the mandatory minimum sentences. So if you were caught with it at all, then you go on five, 10 years to prison. I mean, there are people that are only just getting out now that were put into jail in the 80s for nonviolent criminal offenses. And so that's also, you know, part of the industrial prison complex. And so all these industries that banded together to get this thing banned so it wouldn't hurt their industry ended up creating an entirely new industry altogether, which was this prize and private prison complex. And that is something that we're still very much trying to untangle now. And so it, from the last, you know, 10 to 15,000 years, we were using this plant as a medicine, as a food, as a textile and only for the last you know, 70, 80 years have we not used it. So out of human history, we've only had a very, very infinitesimal small period of time where we haven't been able to use it, but that is the time that we're living in now. And so now over the last 10 years, I think uh, California legalized medicinal cannabis in the 90s, which was very ahead of its time. And it was the first state to do so. And it would be the first state for a long time until we start to see the the, the bubble burst and things come to the surface and then Colorado starts to legalize it. And now we have 35 states with some varying degree of legalization. And now that that has happened, we're seeing this abundance of research come out because people are allowed to research it now. Finally, we're allowed to research a plant that was in the garden. You can go study toxic mushrooms. that could kill a bus full of children in five minutes, but you couldn't study this plant. Yeah. Wow. What a history. I mean, like you said, the history on it, you could go, you can make a whole day movie out of it. There's so much into it because like you said, it impacts this industry and you can do a whole series impacting on that industry and then impacts this one and then so forth. It's just, it def definitely is going to shake things up and it definitely has in a lot of different industries, not just the medical industry, but we are focusing a little bit more on the medical industry today. And maybe we can do another podcast another time to see how it's affected all the other ones. But it's so interesting because when you do talk about cannabis, 
Um, we, we talk about also the endocabinoid system, right? This gets mentioned a lot of the times in research, in papers and things like that. And I guess the average Joe will be reading and being like, the what system or what has this got to do with cannabis or marijuana? They're a bit confused. So would you be able to touch a little bit on that? Certainly. So the endocannabinoid system, even though it has the word cannabinoid in it, uh, we did not, it is not because of cannabis that we have this system. So cannabis, we can date the, the, the formation of cannabis back to about 27 to 30 million years ago. So it's old. Wow. But this endocannabinoid system is present in all vertebrates, not just humans. And this system was created about 600 million years ago. So it is a very ancient system. And the endocannabinoid system, essentially, we think of this system as our body's master homeostatic regulator. <clears throat> so instead of what was previously thought up until the 90s, or even, even now for most physicians, because this doesn't appear in medical curriculum, we'll get onto that later. But instead of all of these systems working independently of one another, your thermoregulation, your ocular sensation, your um, metabolism, your mood, your memory, your reward systems, your... Um, your thyroid, your basically every single system in your body is regulated by this overarching system. So what I like to look at, imagine your body as a big hotel complex and the endocannabinoid system is the maintenance man. It is the, the guy is going around and turning off and on the valves. He's shutting off the lights. He's drawing the curtains. He's fixing the plumbing. <clears throat> and so this endocannabinoid system controls every single aspect of homeostasis and that is a a massive thing it's a massive task it's essentially our it's a second brain it's the brain that keeps things running the the subconscious brain it is the link between the body and the mind and so this endocannabinoid system it is made primarily of endocannabinoids we have the enzymes that make those endocannabinoids and then we have the receptors of this system and right now we know that there's certainly the CB1 and the CB2 receptor, cannabinoid 1 and cannabinoid 2. But for a system that controls every aspect of homeostasis, there's obviously got to be more than those two receptors. And this is what we're starting to find out about now, now that we have the ability to research this stuff, is that there are potentially tens, if not hundreds of other receptors associated with this system. We have TRPV receptors, we have GPR receptors, <clears throat> and... Their job and the job of an endocannabinoid is these endocannabinoids, they essentially allow different cell types to communicate with each other. So we have lots of different cell types, whether they be hormones or neurotransmitters, all of these things, they needed something to bridge the gap between their connections because they're, you know, it's like, it's like competing circuitry. If you don't have the same fit, they're not going to be able to communicate, but these endocannabinoids, they bridge the gap. And so... I say endocannabinoid, meaning obviously a cannabinoid produced endogenously within us. And the reason it's called a cannabinoid, and it was named after cannabis, is because in the 1990s, um, we were able to, um, Lisa Matsuda was able to isolate the THC molecule and then follow its metabolic pathway through our body um, after ingestion. And this, this compound followed a metabolic pathway that we hadn't seen before, and it led to a receptor that we weren't aware of. And so from this, <clears throat> we called um, THC being a cannabinoid, we called this receptor a cannabinoid receptor. Now, 
the reason THC does the things that it does to us, whether it be you know, psychoactive effects, whether it be inflammation, whether it be mood and memory and reward, this THC molecule resembles <clears throat> completely a cannabinoid that we already produce called anandamide. And though, so these two, it is, a, it is a lock and a key mechanism essentially. So THC replicates or mimics anandamide. And so when we ingest THC, it goes to the receptor that our own bodies use for our own cannabinoids. And so we have, <clears throat> currently we know that there's anandamide and we have arachidinol glycerol, which is 2-AG. So those are the two endogenously produced cannabinoids that we know of right now. So okay. it's a very, it's a very complex system. And this is the difficulty right now with cannabis in general is first of all, if you are practicing any type of medicine, you need to know about the system because not knowing about it would be the, be the equivalent of just ignoring the lymphatic system or the cardiovascular system. It is a system in itself and it controls all of those other systems. And unfortunately we've had the stigma of ca cannabis attached to this system even though it's us, it has nothing to do with cannabis. Cannabis just happened to be a plant that we found that interacted with the system. But this system is absolutely integral to every aspect of our health and well-being. And for many people, it's dysregulated and it's leading to a lot of conditions that up until very recently, we didn't know the cause of. And so these conditions, we call them the treatment-resistant conditions, and they're associated with a clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. And so we have IBS, fibromyalgia, migraines, potentially anxiety and depression, endometriosis. Um, these are all conditions that, A, they're very treatment-resistant. There's nothing right now within our medical world that actually treats the root cause of these conditions. Um, B, you won't find them in your regular regular tests. So they have no pathological markers. You won't find them in a blood test and a stool sample and a urinalysis. Um, and then see, they often occur together and repeat over a lifetime. So if somebody has an endometriosis flare up, they might also have their migraines flare up and their IBS flare up because these systems are all connected due to this overarching system. And uh, one other commonality between these conditions is that they've been at some point in time listed as somatic diseases as psychosomatic diseases, as waste paper um, diagnosis, meaning that these doesn't doctors look at and go, they, this doesn't exist, they're imagining exist, it, yeah. is, which is obviously quite horrific for these people that are 100% going through a serious ailment. And because they don't see it in a colonoscopy, they go, well, this is probably psychosomatic, which is, um, it's, and it's not their fault. This system is not, does not appear in any medical curriculum. It's starting to in some places in the States. It's starting to in some places here. But what uh, the, the leaders of the universities have said is that in order to fit the endocannabinoid system into our curriculum, we'd have to kick something else out, which is a complete breach of scientific and health justice. We'll just remove the lymphatic system. It doesn't exist, so we can put that in there. <laughs> Get rid of the nervous system. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> I love how you explained the cannabinoid system. And I like that you said that, you know, cannabis has been linked to this system, but 
it's not the only thing that impacts this. There are so many other plants. There are so many other things out there that impact this system and you don't even have to use um, cannabis for that. So there's so many other things, but unfortunately it's been, or fortunately you can look at it both ways. It's been linked to that and therefore it's been given its name. So we as humans understand it. But like you said, there needs to be so much more research in this field and we're just going to be mind blown when we go more into it and figure out more of these things out. And I guess it's going to assist so many individuals that have these things that they believe or have been told that it's in their hand. Yes, certainly. I mean, this is uh, an incredibly complex system. Uh, we have barely mapped any of it, really. Um, we are only just starting to scratch the tip of the tip of the surface with, with this thing. But what we do know is that it controls almost every aspect of our health and well-being. And um, you don't need to get high with cannabis to be able to activate this system. But the thing with uh, a lot of these people with treatment-resistant conditions is that um, imagine you, your endocannabinoid system is a car that's been left out into a paddock and the grass is kind of growing over it. The weeds are crawling through and you need to get this car back on the road again because it's your transportation, uh, but you can't push it out there yourself. So you need some friends to come and help you. And cannabinoids can be seen of seen as these friends that can come and help you push this car out into the out of the paddock and out into the road. And once you get it started, it's going to start going itself. And so a lot of people, their endocannabinoid system is a bit dysregulated is what we like to say. And so through various cannabinoid therapies, we can upregulate this system and get it to be firing on its own again. And it's this little, needs a little push in the right direction. And it's so, just no, like sometimes you need those high. little friends that are just going to help you in life. I like that yeah. analogy that you put in there. But a lot of people might be listening being like, okay, so what – I know we're going to we're probably short spoken this at the start, but they're a bit confused as in like, okay, so you've got the cannabis. How is cannabis different to marijuana? How does the THC fit in? Do I have to – do I have to get high to fix my endometriosis? Like, what is all that? Like, what is the difference between someone smoking marijuana and a joint compared to someone taking it for medical purposes? Is it the same thing? All right. And this is, this is the challenge that we will continue to have over the next few years is where does cannabis fit into healthcare and how do we use it in, in, a, in a safe manner? So cannabis, as I spoke to briefly before, is not just cannabis or weed or marijuana. <clears throat> it is a collection of some of the most bioactive compounds on earth and it happens to be in this one plant. So we have the main constituents of plant of cannabis are cannabinoids like THC and CBD. Um, there's about 132 of those cannabinoids. We have terpenes, which they are present in cannabis, but they're also present within the botanical world. So you have um, <clears throat> things like pinene and limonene. They're both found in cannabis, but they're also found in pine needles and citrus fruits. And then you have flavonoids, which are another um, biological marker of this plant that are also pharmacologically active. And so THC is the primary cannabinoid that gets you high. It produces psychoactive effects because it mimics our own molecule, anandamide, which was called, it's called anandamide from the Sanskrit word for bliss. And so what is our happy chem chemical? So you see, you know, those people that are always happy, nothing ever seems to get them down most likely they, they are producing bountiful amounts of anandamide. And what happens when we ingest THC is that <clears throat> it's like we've just put a whole bunch of this chemical into our system, our own chemical, and that produces these psychoactive effects. Um, 
But no, you do not have to get high to enjoy the medicinal benefits. In saying that, THC, yes, it gets you high, but it also has some incredible therapeutic benefits, whether it be anti-inflammation, disrupting pain messaging signals, um, actually allowing people to forget they're in pain rather than just reduce the actual physical sensation of pain. And so <clears throat> we have 132 different cannabinoids that we know of right now, more and more are being discovered every single year. And the only ones that we unfortunately focus on right now are THC and CBD. Um, and this can lead to a little bit of media sensationalism. It can meet, lead to some misinformation. And so it really comes down to the individual plant and why it has been bred and how it has been bred. So, and this is one of the challenges in the medical world is that lots of the plants that we use for medicinal cannabis have also been, they've been bred from recreational plants in the States. So they've been bred to have really high THC content. We're talking 25 to 30%, maybe even more. And they're not really caring about these other cannabinoids. We have like CBN, CBG, CBC, CBE, all of these things that they don't get you high which is what the recreational market wants, but they can produce very significant physiological, physiological changes working on a variety of different receptors throughout our bodies and the endocannabinoid system. And so let's just drop back to cannabis versus marijuana versus hemp, et cetera. So marijuana, they, again, that, that was a term that the U S government used as a pejorative term to incite fear and irrationalism and, and, and unrest towards Mexican immigrants. Um, now we have cannabis versus hemp. Legally, hemp is that so they're they're basically the same species, but they're subspecies. So hemp is cannabis with less than zero percent, zero point three percent THC content, and so it doesn't produce THC. It won't get you high. It does come with a bunch of other cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids that can all be pharmacologically active, but the way that hemp is bred generally is for either it's seeds or it's fiber. So it's a, it's a textile and they use that for that kind of cultivation. Now hemp is federally legal in Australia. You can grow it, you can grow it in the States, but if you're trying to grow it for um, you know, recreational purposes, you will be sorely disappointed. Whereas cannabis is what we use for most, if not all medical applications. Yeah, such an interesting breakdown. Thank you so much for that. It makes it clearer for individuals to understand that because some people are like, oh, you're eating hemp seeds, you're going to get high. And it's like, no, you're not going to get high by eating hemp seeds. <laughs> you might get happy because you get into protein, which is making all those neurotransmitters, but that's a different story. You're not going to get that high that you usually would with smoking a joint. So it's totally different. So thanks so much for clarifying that. I love that. So, you know, what, I wanted to know what is the fuss around medical cannabis? I mean, with everything that you've said, we can clearly see what the fuss is about because it can impact so many different things and it can assist so many individuals with their current, you know, out of balance um, bodies that they currently have. But how does it fit into the current healthcare? Because, um, you know, is it legal? Is it illegal? Is it in the current healthcare and how does it fit in? All right. So this is, it's a very challenging situation right now. So yes, it is legal. Any doctor in Australia can prescribe you medicinal cannabis. Um, there's roughly 36,000 GPs across Australia, uh, but we only have roughly right now 150 authorized prescribers. And so an authorized prescriber 
what it means is that if you, if you are a regular GP and you want to prescribe your patient cannabis, you can do so. You're supposed to be confident that you, what you're doing is the right thing. You're supposed to have tried other avenues for, for treatment and we're supposed to be using cannabis as a last resort. Um, and what it takes is that essentially you go for your appointment with your doctor. They fill out an application to the TGA. It's called a SASB for unapproved medicines. They send that to the TGA. The TGA sends it back, approves it. Generally, they don't really disprove it. And then your doctor can then prescribe you a certain variety of cannabis, whether it be actual flowers and, and, and buds to, to smoke or to vaporize, or they can prescribe you different tinctures, usually in the form of oils. And in terms of it fitting into our traditional model of healthcare, it doesn't really, and it hasn't. And that's, that's exemplified by the amount of authorized prescribers. So an authorized prescriber is somebody who doesn't need to go to the TGA and fill out an application. They can prescribe cannabis as they would any other medication. And that's 150 doctors out of every single doctor in Australia right now. And you got to think, all right, then why wouldn't these other doctors prescribe cannabis? Well, first of all, we have some very deeply set stigma. Um, you know, doctors are not immune to the rest of the thoughts of mankind. They're, they're extremely studied. They're extremely experienced in their areas. Um, and most of them have been subject to the same kind of um, stigmatic experiences as us is like, you know, but why would I want to give people weed? That's for stoners. That's for losers. And part of the thing that is not really adding to cannabis's credibility is the fact that it is being used for so many different things. And so if you were a doctor and you see this medicine and people are saying that they use it for PTSD, they use it for nausea, they use it for pain, they use it for sleep, they use it for anxiety, they use it for, they use it for everything. Then it's like going to a restaurant that does breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You're going to go, well, it's not going to do any of them well because they're not focusing on one thing. And this comes back to this idea that people are thinking about cannabis as just weed, whereas it is a collection of hundreds of bioactive compounds within one plant. And it doesn't really fit into this traditional model of healthcare because nurses don't know how to dispense it. Clinicians don't know how to prescribe it. They certainly don't know how it works. And even I don't know how it works. Any, anybody that says that they do know how cannabis works, they're kidding themselves because we're only just starting to understand these things. CBD, one molecule out of hundreds, has over 60 different mechanisms of action. Wow. Doctors are used to prescribing things with one mechanism of action. And so what it really requires is its own specialist field. Cannabis is a specialist medicine. It takes years and years of, of study to, um, to actually know what's going on and, and being able to estimate patient outcomes and monitor patient outcomes as well. And so you have doctors that over their, their, their years of study, they, they've learned hundreds of different medications, learned hundreds of different mechanisms of actions for various systems. And then you give them one plant that has potentially thousands of different mechanisms of actions within that one plant. And that is a massive, massive job to learn. And then you say, they say, all right, well then how does it work? And you go, well, it exerts its influence upon the endocannabinoid system. And then the doctor goes, well, what is the endocannabinoid system? And so this is the struggle is where do you start with this education? How do you give it to clinicians in a trusted way that they can feel confident enough to prescribe cannabis to their patients? Essentially, what we know is that a clinician needs to know, is it safe? Yes, we know that it is safe. We know that nobody's died from it. We know that 
even if you do experience some kind of adverse reactions, those adverse reactions can generally be mitigated using other constituents from the plant. Um, so they need to know, is it safe? Yes. They need to know, well, what, what are the case studies? Show me examples. And so we have lots of different case studies. I mean, you've seen them on Facebook, you've seen them on YouTube, you've seen people stop, you know, having their epileptic seizures or Parkinson's shakes um, with a few drops of cannabis oil. And these are all anecdotal and not really the thing that a clinician is probably going to spend their free time looking at. Um, so you need to have a curiosity in it before you are probably open-minded to it. And yeah. then that we're going to start to see um, probably a lot of specialist cannabis clinics and um, any, any specialist, whether you're a sleep specialist or a pain specialist or a movement disorder specialist, things like that. The idea is that we'll set up a framework where those specialists can refer their patients to the specialist cannabis clinics that know exactly how to prescribe that for that specific condition. And then you give that clinician enough information to where they can continue their ongoing therapeutic relationship with them and monitor the outcomes of that patient. Yeah, that's, I, I can totally understand why there would be only 150 GPs that are authorized without having to go to the TGA because of what you just said, the lack of information, the lack of um, understanding about the system. And you even said it, we don't even understand the system. And, you know, it has, so, it has that only that one active pathway that it's working on, usually when you're using pharmaceuticals. But now we're looking at something that has so many and impacts this and impacts that. It's like, oh my gosh, like, what am I working on? How am I working on? How am I going to measure it? What is the outcome in a week? What if it impacts this? What if it impacts that? And you can see where some individuals may not be as confident enough to prescribe this this, this beautiful, beautiful plant to individuals, even though it can assist them and they know it can help them, but they're not confident enough to know what the outcome is going to be. So I think the education that you said, the specialist clinics and all those things are definitely going to make it a lot easier. And that 150 GPs is definitely going to double and even, you know, times to more than thousands and thousands of GPs here in Australia that are going to be more confident enough that they can refer them on to a specialist that understands how, for example, um, cannabis is able to help someone with Parkinson's. Exactly right. And something we need to remember with this medication, and, and there's a reason probably contributes to why clinicians don't want to use it, is because, again, it's been described as being uh, therapeutically active for all of these different symptoms, for all of these different conditions. How could one drug possibly target all of these things? But uh, another thing is that there's been too much misinformation online about cannabis curing things, curing cancer, curing this, curing that. It's not a curative medication. It is like other pharmaceuticals, a palliative medication in a sense, meaning, meaning that um, for most conditions, it's not going to actually cure it. Maybe if it's an endocannabinoid related deficiency like endometriosis or, or IBS or fibromyalgia, it can certainly target the root cause of that, of that thing, but it's not a silver bullet for anything. It's really diverse and it's very, very effective for, for managing many of these wellness areas. But again, it is not a silver bullet. And that's what we need to be leading the conversation um, with when it comes to clinicians is saying, yes, this, this isn't a cure. But what it is, is a fantastic symptomatic manager with a very favorable side effect profile that can be managed very easily through dosage and, and adding different things into your routine. So once yeah. we open the door to that, then 
let's start to use this not as a last line of defense when nothing else has worked. Let's start to use it as a first line defense. Instead wow. of putting somebody on opioids forever, let's try this option first. Yeah, but thing my mind just blew thinking about all the possibilities if we do use it as a first line or or not just as a last line defense there's so many individuals that their lifestyle wouldn't their lifestyle would improve their families would improve their work would improve their confidence would improve because they would no longer have those seat not no longer have them have a reduction of those seizures a reduction of the shakes reduction of the pain reduction of those anxieties and so forth which essentially if you ask someone who has any of them if they want it just a 10% reduction of these they will put their hand up and say that will change my mind my whole life so these possibilities are just mind-blowing so this is why i'm so intrigued in in this and i and i'm, I'm researching into and looking into and i want more people to understand that it's not just i'm just going to get high and there i am it's definitely has a lot more purpose than that certainly i mean we i like to look at cannabis as the ultimate functional medicine so a functional medicine being somebody, something that allows you to optimize your well-being because if it helps to take away your pain in the morning and instead of sitting in bed or on the couch all day, you're able to get up and go for a walk. You're able to walk a couple Ks and then you may be able to walk another couple Ks the next day or maybe it has um, lessened your symptoms of chronic depression and then you're able to go out and socialize. It, what it does is it facilitates change in people through managing their symptoms and there's nothing wrong with getting high either. I'm, I'm a full proponent of, of do whatever you want to do with a plant. It's a plant. Grow coca leaves. I don't. I really don't care. Like you should be able to make informed decisions about your health. And who's to say that people that are self-medicating because they're going to try to get high, maybe they're medicating so that they don't have to use medication later. Like it's, it's a got an incredibly diverse range of therapeutic areas. And that's not even diving into the, um, you know the catalyst like qualities of it when it comes to our minds and our perspectives and our patients and our belief systems. And it's, um, it's something that if used correctly, like anything else, it's a tool and it's all about how you wield that tool. Yeah. And I guess this episode is just an introduction to it, just to give us a little bit more information. Hopefully we'll be able to do maybe one that just digs deep into a little bit more of it and understanding how the pathway works of what we understand and how it can help someone. But before we close up for today, I wanted to find out a little bit more about terpenes because you did mention them and you said that they are found in cannabis, but also found in other things like pines and lemons and so forth. So what is the efficacy of terpenes and how do they work on their own? And I know that you also are, big, are a big proponent of using them with cannab uh, cannabis uh, hand in hand. Certainly. So terpenes are they're hydrocarbon molecules that are essentially the scent molecules of plants. And so when you smell a, you go out into a pine forest and you take a big deep breath and you feel that serenity wash over you, that's terpenes. Or whether you smell a certain smell that triggers a deja vu, a, a, a deep dormant memory of, of a happy time, that's ter terpenes as well. And so within the plant, the role of the terpene is its defense mechanisms, usually through that smell um, or the production of vitamins or the production of hormones. When it comes to us, these terpenes, some of them interact with our endocannabinoid system, not necessarily through the CB1 and CB2 receptors, but through the TRPV receptors. Um, and they are 
nature's purest medicine in a sense. So let's take uh, some of the major terpenes that we find in cannabis. And these are the ones that I focus on. There's you know, roughly 30,000 documented terpenes. So more than enough that you could possibly fill into a brain over a lifetime. But I, I, I really focus on the cannabis terpenes because these terpenes are what dictate what kind of experience a cannabis plant will bring. So if you have been in the cannabis world for a little bit, or you've had some interest, you've probably heard indica versus sativa. And sativa is generally described as an uplifting, euphoric, uh, mood elevating strain with, um, you know, helps with uh, creativity, inspiration, maybe focus for some people, lessening anxiety. And then indica is very much um, geared towards sleep, uh, pain, very physical sensations, very body heavy. Um, but rather than two different types of plants, what it is is the terpene profile within those plants that make it a certain way. And so let's take limonene and pinene, for example. Limonene is found in, in, in many lemon diesel-y plants. So when you, when you grind up a plant that has lots of limonene in it, it smells like a batch of lemons. It's very citrusy, very sweet, very sticky and pungent. And um, take pinene as well. Pinene, fine and pine conifers, um, pine cones, that terpene on its own, pinene is a, uh, it can increase your memory, it can enhance your memory, enhance your mood. It's a bronchodilator. It's a, it's has cytoprotective qualities. It has anti-tumor qualities. It's an antibacterial. It's a broad spectrum antibiotic. Um, it is, uh, it's potentially an antihypertensive um, acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So this one terpene, again, has over 40 different studied mechanisms of action, right? So this, in fact, I, I use pinene every day. I, have, I put it in a little jar and I just, I, I inhale it. Helps with my allergies. Um, gives me a bit of bronchodilation, um, clears up any kind of congestion that I have. And then let's take the other terpene, limonene. Limonene is, again, one of my favorite terpenes. A, it tastes great. It smells great. Um, Everybody listening to this podcast has probably encountered limonene in the form of um, uh, kitchen sprays and cleaning, cleaning substances. So it's a very, very potent antibacterial. But when we ingest it, it also increases our dopamine production and it can enhance serotonin availability. So these are, you know, the same kind of properties as an antidepressant. And you look at limonene and you go, well, why haven't we been using this as an antidepressant? Well, first of all, the research is very recent. And second of all, pharmaceutical companies cannot patent and copyright a molecule found in lemons. They can't do it. And so it makes far more sense to synthesize your own version of that product and then copyright it and sell it to the masses. It makes sense. Uh, it's, a, it's a smart business move. I would like to think that I wouldn't do the same, but I probably would because you know when you get to that stage, you're, you're going to be making financial decisions. Um, and then let's take another one of my favorites, uh, linalool. Linalool is found lots in um, in, in very body heavy strains, very relaxing anti-anxiety strains. And linalool is found in lavender. So it's the primary active component in lavender. We've been using lavender for thousands of years for anxiety to hysteria, to sleep issues, to pain. Um, so linalool increases our GABA sensitivity. It's a potent anxiolytic. And when you pair all of these things together, you start to get what's called the entourage effect in cannabis. Now, this is a, a phenomena where multiple ingredients work together to produce new and varying effects. 
Um, it's basically like it could be made into a movie. It's like it, we're, we're stronger together than apart. And so you take these isolated compounds and they certainly have medical efficacy, but you put them together. And this is why cannabis treats so many different areas is because you have all of these compounds working together to achieve a common result. And that common result is usually massively medically beneficial to us. And the role of terpenes, not only, so that was individually just us using them, but Terpenes also modulate and regulate the effects of cannabinoids like THC and CBD. So you take a, pine, a, a terpene called myrcene. Myrcene is found in mangoes, hops, um, basil. And myrcene, what it does is it helps to, it's, it's very good at crossing the blood-brain barrier. And what it does is it, it attaches to all these other cannabinoids and then takes them across the blood-brain barrier, increasing the bioavailability of THC, also potentially enhancing its psychoactive effects. So it's not something that um, everybody's going to like, but it also is a mild narcotic. And so it increases the, the duration and uh, strength of THC's analgesic properties. And so we can start to tune these little concoctions to certain avenues of health. So if you are using medicinal cannabis and you don't like the effects of it on your mind. You don't like the THC, but you love the fact that it takes away your pain. Then we might look at providing a medicinal cannabis patient with a blend of terpenes that are designed to take away that high. So you put some limonene in there, um, some pinene to give you clarity and focus, uh, some linalool to take away any anxiety related to that THC. And then suddenly you have an antidote. So you have a plant that does all these medicinal things. Oh, it's got a side effect that we don't really like. Well, we use other things from that plant and take away that side effect. That is mind blowing. That is absolutely amazing. Like that, just the thought process that you came up with that is just absolutely amazing. And all of those terms that you're talking about are found in so many things in nature. And this is where plant medicine is key. And these are why some of these plants don't only have one of those things, they've got so many other constituents in there, so many metabolites, secondary metabolites and so forth in them to make them action and get the result in your body that you kind of want. So I absolutely love that. And I know that you've actually made your own mixes from these turpins and you've put them into little boxes to help with focus, to help with anxiety, help with sleep and help with pain. And it can be used individually, but they can also be used with your medical cannabis side by side to do exactly what you said. Yeah, certainly. They can be, they're uh, very powerful on their own and they can be used as standalone products or you can use them alongside medicinal cannabis products to either enhance the effects that you want or mitigate the downsides that you don't want. And so, you know, there's, again, early days of research. Um, there's so many different terpenes and so many different cannabinoids and so many different combinations that really it's a job for, for AI. It's a, it's a computer's job. There's just way too many different combinations um, to possibly figure it out organically. But what we do know is that these things are powerful. Nature has provided, I mean, every single aspect of our modern healthcare system of modern medicine has come from an origin in nature, every single one. And so we, we didn't make these things up out of the blue. We saw some kind of analog in nature and we decided to synthesize it ourselves. And it's led to an incredible, incredible array of um, pharmaceuticals that we have. But now we're approaching this time where, I think we really do need to start looking back in order to go forward. Look, look back at these and, and use the tools 
of modern day science to dissect these things and understand how they work and why they work. And we are nature. Maybe it's best we use it for our health. Yeah, 100%. So look, what, what type of practical tips or one tip that you could give for the audience to make the most use of the cannabinoid system to achieve optimal health? What would that be if you can give the audience one practical tip? Certainly. Well, uh, as we said, you do not need to use cannabis to activate this endocannabinoid system. It's active in all of us all the time. And the beautiful thing about the endocannabinoid system is that it responds to things that we love. So if you are particularly passionate about something, when you do that thing, you are producing an andamide, the bliss molecule, through the endocannabinoid system. And when that's, that molecule is released, it starts to upregulate the rest of that system. Singing is a very powerful way to upregulate your endocannabinoid system. Exercise is probably the biggest way to do it. Um, adequate sleep, um, really good essential fats, omega-3s, omega-6s, they, they are fabulous for the system as well. So my biggest health tip related to the endocannabinoid system is to do things that you love. I love that and making a clear link there. All right. Well, to finish off, ask all my guests at this natural podcast, what is your health hack that you might do every day um, or once a month, once a week? What's something that you do that gets you to optimal health cam? I get in a cold ocean. <laughs> I just shock myself. I try to conquer my inner bitch. <laughs> Because I don't want to get into the cold ocean. But by <laughs> God, if I do, then by the time I get out, I feel like I can do anything. I love it. I love it. Every time you're about to do something, you're like, I'm going to get into that cold ocean. When I come out, I'm going to go and get you. I'm going to come and crush it. Exactly right. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Thank you so, so much for your time on the Natural Heart Podcast. I really appreciate it. And if individuals want to purchase those products, how would they be able to do that? And where would they be able to find you? All right. So my, my terpene business can be found at trifectahealthco.com. Um, my name is Cameron Rosen. You can find me on Instagram, on LinkedIn. Um, my podcast is called Age of Info. You can find me wherever you find podcasts. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me on today. It was, a, it was a beautiful chat and we only you know dived into the surface. So maybe another podcast in the future, diving into more of the specifics. A hundred percent. Thank you so much for sharing your time and guys jump on the podcast that he's got available. Absolutely amazing information on there. And I'll put all the notes in the show notes. So you'll be able to access them. Thank you so much for being on the natural health podcast cam. Thank you, Mahela. Thank you for joining us at the natural health podcast. And remember the missing link between failure and success is your health.